Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Yumi Sakugawa and Mary Naomi. Hi. Oh my God. Thank you so much for coming out when it's like practically raining in Los Angeles. <laughs> Um, so what we're going to do here, I'm going to read um, a little bit from my new book. Um, it's my third book, but it's my first hardcover ever, and I'm very, very excited about it. Um, and it's also the first long-form book, like not a bunch of short stories that I've ever done. And so I'm like, so it's kind of a big deal for me. Um, so I'm going to read a little from the book, and then my dear friend Yumi, who is such a superstar. She's going to come up and we're going to talk about being Asian and about making comics. And, um, and then we're going to do a little Q&A. So if at any point you're thinking, like, I wonder what she means by that, you know, save that question in your head and we'll do a Q&A. And then afterwards, um, I believe we'll both be sending our books. Um, and I also have avocados from my tree. They're organic. Um, if anyone wants them, I have two huge bags. And I brought little bags so that you can ripen them in the little bags. If you throw an apple in, it ripens even faster. Um, so we'll have that up at the signing table. And um, there's more than enough for all of you. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> maybe I should. Can anybody not see the screen from here? Okay. 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 So uh, my book, Turning Japanese, um, it got, it's published by this uh, small press called 2D Cloud, and. It's a comics memoir about trying to find my cultural identity as a mixed-race person um, by working at hostess bars in Tokyo and San Jose. Because when I was 22, I thought that would be the greatest way to connect with my culture. Um, <laughs> la, la, la. Um, <laughs> uh, if you're not familiar with the concept, a hostess bar is where... Um, Hostesses, usually women, almost always women, um, will keep you company while you drink. Um, they're kind of like bartenders, um, only they take more of an effort to be social with the patrons. Um, like, they sing karaoke, they participate in the revelry. Um, they're just like really involved, friendly versions of bartenders as we know them. Um, and their primary ro role is to encourage someone to drink, but you get charged for your time with them in addition to what you're drinking. Um, so in a typical Asian hostess bar, in addition to paying for your drinks, you also pay a table fee for their time. Um, there are host bars in Japan too, but they're not as common um, where you're accompanied by men. Um, I've never been to one, but, um, but I wouldn't mind going just to see <laughs> what the difference is. Um, so a little about my background is I grew up in a super white town called Mill Valley, um, which is sort of a suburb of San Francisco. Um, and there, I didn't get a lot of opportunity to meet a lot of Asian people. Um, like my mom and my sister were pretty much it. Um, except for when we go to Japan, and um, then my family were also Asian, obviously, but then I didn't speak the language, so I couldn't really communicate with them. Um, when I moved to San Jose in the 90s, I was kind of blown away that there was a Japanese community there. Um, most of them were expats in the tech com uh, community industry. Um, before long, I found out about a job opening at a hostess bar, which I knew about in Japan, but I didn't realize that they had them in the States. Um, in fact, my, uh, my aunt used to own one, so I'd been to hers. Um, it seemed like a really good opportunity to not only make some money, but to learn Japanese and the, to connect with the Japanese culture, which had eluded me for so long, because my mom really never wanted to get into that with me. 
Um, so I t intended to work at the Yamamoto Bar, not the real name, um, long enough to grasp the language, um, and that's so I could travel to Japan and speak to my mom's side of the family without a uh, translator slash editor slash censor um, for the first time in my life. So this book is about that journey. And this reading is going to focus on the first bar that I worked at, um, which was in San Jose, California. So uh, Yamamoto Bar was actually a restaurant and a bar. Um, the bar was connected to the restaurant, but you could only get there if you knew that you were supposed to pass through the mysterious velvet purple curtains on the way to the restrooms. Um, it was a totally illegal operation. <laughs> on a typical day, six or so hostesses came in around 8 o'clock. We sat together in the waiting room, which was also used as a karaoke booth for large parties. Um, we'd gossip, we'd get ready, or we'd just watch the karaoke videos um, until the customers started filtering in. On a, usually there'd be one or two regulars at first. Um, the bulk of the clients came in after dinner time. Our manager, Nakasan, not his real name, uh, assigned hostesses to the table. If a Japanese-only speaking client came in, he'd place a Japanese girl with them. If the client spoke English, then they'd get an American, usually, unless they requested a Japanese girl. Um, most, not most, a few of the hostesses had regular clients that they developed relationships with over time. The regulars would be seated with their favorite hostesses. However, at times, uh, a hostess would have multiple regulars show up at the same time. When that happened, Nakasan would seat the girl with the most generous or well-to-do client, and the other men would have to wait their turn, um, often in the presence of a hostess whom they found less than desirable, and this was no fun for anybody. If a table started looking awkward, Nakasan would move the hostesses around trying to get a better fit. Or if, like, a more rich guy came in, then he'd also move them around. Head turn. <laughs> Go to table three. Excuse me, I say in Japanese. One of the few things I could say in Japanese. May I join you? She says. Clients would order sushi from the restaurant next door. Sometimes they'd even share. Once, I came in hungry, so I was relieved when the men at my table ordered a giant platter that they didn't seem to be touching. Do you mind if I have a piece? I asked him. Sure, no problem, he said. I kept an eye on Nakasan, worried that eating on the job might be frowned upon. I popped a sushi into my mouth, but when I looked down at the platter, I noticed something very odd. Where did that big lump of wasabi go? <laughs> oh my god, it must be in my mouth. <laughs> spit or swallow, spit or swallow. Gulp. This is not an analogy, by the way. This actually happened. <laughs> Within moments, I had what can only be described as an adrenaline rush. I did my best not to burp anything up. And after that incident, I never had any problems eating wasabi again. Actually, until the other day, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> it was almost as if I'd been injected with wasabi antibodies, and now I was immune to its spiciness. In fact, Yumi was there the other day when I just, I'm like, oh, this is what it's like to have the wasabi burn. As a hostess, I was expected to drink with the customers. Please drink more, he says. Well, if I must. Keep the glasses full. Light cigarettes. And Sue Ann says, 
I hate cigarettes. It's the worst part of the job, all the smoke. Politely make conversation. Flirting was greatly encouraged. I say, your job sounds very important. Ah, no, ha, 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 he says. (laughs) Sing karaoke, albeit badly. It was a great tactic for getting out of a dull conversation. Here I am singing Blondie, not, not in key. Slow dance with the customers, although this was optional. And here Joan is saying, you give me 20 bucks for this dance, okay? It's not actually okay. There's, that was part of the job. <laughs> we made nine bucks an hour, which was kind of a lot back then in the 90s, uh, plus tips. We weren't supposed to take tips from the customers directly, and if money was handed to us, we're supposed to give it to Nakasan who would divvy up the tips equally at the end of the night, no doubt taking a cut for themselves as well. This is totally illegal, by the way. Still, some of the gals kept their tips for themselves, and I did it too every once in a while. Um, Like this one time, when this dude sat me sat with me and Sally, who was this Chinese hostess, and he and his friend made racist comments all night about her in Japanese, which she thankfully couldn't understand. And afterwards, he said to me, Here, this is just for you. Don't share it with a chink, okay? I said, thanks, utterly hating him. Sally, I said, that table just gave us a tip. Do you think we should give it to Nakasan? Really, she said? That's surprising. They didn't seem very happy. Let's keep it for ourselves. We deserve it. Those men were so boring. They only wanted to talk in Japanese, but I think they knew how to speak English. Okay, here, take it before Nakasan sees it. Hee 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 hee. Many of the hostesses liked to play gambling games with a customer. Nakasan forbade this activity, probably because it meant that none of the money would go in his pocket. But this didn't stop some of the gals, especially the Americans. I usually didn't play these games. I needed the money, sure, but what I really wanted was to learn Japanese and not risk losing my job. But every so often, a customer would insist. And the customer's always right, so... Here he says, If you win, I'll give you $20. But if I win, I get a kiss on the cheek. Which cheek? (laughs) Huh? (laughs) I loved this joke, as it would always make the men blush. And as long as I was the one making them blush, I maintained the power in the transaction. Some things I learned at the bar. Number one, I'm not the only one who gets flushed from drinking alcohol. A third of all people of Japanese, Chinese, and Korean descent have a red-faced reaction to drinking alcohol due to a lack of digestive enzyme. This is something sometimes accompanied by rapid heartbeat and nausea and has been linked to increased risk of esophageal cancer. The red face thing um, can be offset by taking a Pepsid AC about an hour before you drink. Um, I've since learned, which is a great life hack if you have Asian blood. Um, Things I learned number two. Other physical traits that I thought were particular to me were not necessarily. What's Mongolian mark, I asked. It's when a baby is born with a blue spot on its bottom. Oh, I had that when I was a girl, but it went away when I was in puberty. Ha 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 ha. Hanma-san had that too. Maybe you're related. Ha 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 ha. I didn't get that joke either. (laughs) Things I learned number three. Japanese bar humor is often based on pointing out people's differences in an unflattering light, i.e. they can be mean. This is our best customer, Teddy-san. Nice to meet you, Teddy. 
We call him Teddy-san because he's so fat. <laughs> Other things I learned. Uh, number four, some people will do anything for a buck. If you give me 20 bucks, I'll give you some of my pubic hair. She would do this like every week. And I would often get, what will you do for $20? Things I learned, number five, life isn't fair. Good night, Nakasan. Wait a moment, Mari. You did good work tonight, so I'll give you more money than I gave to the other girls, okay? What? Uh, that's okay, you don't have to. Not all the girls are pretty like you. Pretty girls get more business, so I'll pay you more money. You take it, okay? I'd like to say that I took a stand for sisterhood, but I really needed the money. Thanks, Naka. Don't tell the other girls, okay? Things I learned number six. Even the most beautiful people can be insecure. Here we see a before and after of my coworker, Sue Ann, whose beauty mark mysteriously disappeared one day. Where is it? Hey, Sue Ann, where'd your beauty mark go? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> Mari, Sue Ann's really upset about it. She was at a photo shoot over the weekend and a supermodel convinced her to get it removed. <gasps> it was her thing. I thought she loved that mole. <laughs> I know, she did. The supermodel even went with her and watched her get it done. I don't get it. Why did she cave? I don't know, but she's been inconsolable ever since, so I think you should probably drop it. Things I learned, number seven, anyone can be vain. Here's Joan singing Killing Me, Killing Me Softly at karaoke. Didn't she sing this song last night? She sang this song two hours ago. I cannot listen to that song, you guys. Like that was, it was like multiple times every day. Anyway, clap, 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 clap. Bow. <sighs> nice singing. I know, it's what I do. Ha. <laughs> Things I learned, number eight. You never know what you're getting. At the bar, we sold small bottles of Japanese water for $2 each. These were meant to mix with whiskey or just to drink. Each table was automatically given and charged one bottle per person who was seated at the table. Here's Nakasan saying, I refill the water bottles with water from the sink. Otherwise, it would be wasteful. I don't want to waste, ne? Nakasan, recycling pioneer. <laughs> Sometimes, customers would drink the tap water directly from the bottles, but Nakasan wouldn't take them out of rotation. Oh, wait a moment. Let me get that in a glass for you. It's okay. Nope, he'd just wipe it off with a dirty rag, refill it from the tap, and resell it. So gross. Things I learned, number nine. Sexual harassment by dirty old men is considered hilarious. Here is an older gent lunging at a cheerful hostess's breast area as she prepares his drink. As he goes in for the lunge, she deftly diverts his hand by handing him his beverage, thus politely and humorously sparing herself an unconsensual grope. This tactic, of course, takes a lot of time to learn and depends on a hostess's sense of timing. Things I learned, number 10, learning Japanese is hard, especially when talking to red-faced businessmen. Mm -hmm. 
I don't understand. Can you please talk slower? Things I learned number 11. I am not cut out for this. Here is a drunk guy leering at my push-up bra. <laughs> Maybe we can dance later. Hee <laughs> hee. More beer, Mr. Sato? I'm doing this for a reason. I'm doing this for a reason. I'm doing this for a reason. Feeling like a lapse feminist. That's the end of my presentation. Thanks, guys. Yumi Sakagawa, please come on up. <laughs> Give it up for Yumi. Thank you. Thanks for joining me, Yumi. Ooh. Oh, yeah, anytime. Um, I just want to say, in comparison to your journey and um, finding your Japanese roots, mine just feels so boring by comparison. <laughs> because for me, I was like, well, I'm in college, and I'm going to do the Nikkei Student Union, and I guess I'll teach English in Japan. I wish I was like cool enough to want to be a bar hostess. <laughs> but we could talk more about that. I wish there was a Nikkei, whatever that was that you just said, at my disposal. There, there was nothing. There was one girl um, who, who was Japanese and my that went to my school, and we totally avoided each other because, you know, we're the only Japanese girls. Um, her name was Yoko, which is also my aunt's name and also my idol's name. Um, but, yeah, and her parents, like, owned the Japanese restaurant in town. Like, it was so, like, that was it. Why do you guys think you guys avoided each other? Because we didn't want to be, like, the only two weirdos. And, like, you know, in the white, white, white school. Actually, there were, now that I think about it, there were a couple of other Asian people, but they all um, were adopted by white people. Um, what is that sound? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sorry. Um, there was actually, there was a, a Kwapa guy, a quarter Japanese guy, who was briefly in my sixth grade class, and his name was also Mori. Um, and we also avoided each other, so there was a lot of avoiding going on between the Asians in this very, very white school. Well, I think that's a perfect segue into um, the first question I wanted to ask you, actually. Um, I've, I read Turning Japanese. The glowing blurb I wrote on the back is all completely true. I was so excited to uh, read this book uh, before others did and to just really be a part of this journey as a reader. And I think for me as a second-generation Japanese-American artist and woman, um, I think what I related to so much was just the feeling of being an outsider in your own culture, both being a part of it and also just sort of feeling separated from it because you're not fully Japanese, Japanese, but uh, something else. So I was wondering what that means to you, sort of being an outsider, whether it's being a Japanese-American, being Hapa, um, being bisexual, and how that, how that um, relates to the art and stories you make. I'm also equally a cat and dog person. Um, I'm kind of squarely in the middle of everything. Um, you know, until we became friends, I didn't realize that um, that I felt like such a special snowflake that, you know, as a mixed-race person and one of the very few mixed-race people I'd ever met... Um, I thought that was kind of my experience, um, which was actually made me really afraid of writing this book because I'm like, no one's going to relate to this at all. Um, but then, you know, finding out about, oh, yeah, that does make sense. Like, you're kind of out of 
out of the Japanese. I feel like in, in Japan, especially, it's so easy to be an outsider. And I feel like a lot of people, like even if they're in, they also feel like outsiders because they're, they just got to always watch themselves. Like, oh, yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> I was so depressed when I was in Japan, which, which led to my nervous breakdown, which led to me discovering meditation. But we can talk about that some other time <laughs> at my event. Uh-oh. I'm going to balance here on this broken tail for a second. Um, sorry, I got distracted. <laughs> We're talking about outsiders, Japan, how people, even people in Japan feel isolated, yeah. which, which I think is completely true. You know, I kind of, I think when I was in middle school, um, like sixth or seventh grade, I felt like I really wanted to fit in. And I think I'd always felt like a big fat nerd and just, just kind of just wrong. Um, and I couldn't really put my finger on why. Um, I thought it was because I couldn't figure out how to dress fashionably, which was also true. Um, I dressed horribly, and I looked at I look at pictures of myself back then, and I'm like, what was I wearing? No wonder everyone hated me. I mean, I don't know if they actually did hate me, but I hated me looking at, at that picture. Um, Sanrio head to toe. <laughs> and, you know, which actually I would probably do now. In fact, my purse, oh, my my husband um, is, is carrying my purse. It's got a giant cat head on it, and it says, I heart poo, with an H. My mom sent it to me. It's Whoa, the cutest thing ever. I never noticed ever. that before. That's amazing. <laughs> Isn't it? Well, we should just all stare at that for the next I heart poo. I don't know what it means. With an H, but it's not Winnie the Pooh on there. It's a cat. Um, anyway, sorry, I digress. Um, so by the time I think I hit around 13 or 14 and hit high school, I, w- um, I was like, screw those guys, you know, why do I want to be like them anyway? And um, and then I kind of reveled in the fact that I was different. And I think I even tried to be even more different, just like to I, like I was this death rocker girl, and I had just you know all black, like punk music, and you know all that stuff. Like, I, and there weren't a lot of those people, you know, in my school. So I don't know. I, I just really embraced it, and so. I kind of liked the fact that I was the only Asian around except for when um, creepy old guys would hit on me and ask me what kind of blood I have, which happened actually on a daily basis for about three years, two and a half years, every single day. What kind of blood? you have yeah as in your ancestry or your presumably i mean but i at first i was like kind of flattered i'm like oh haha half japanese and then i you know it just wears on you and then i came up with these really snarky you know it's red you know i mean i was you know a teenager so i wasn't very good at snarky snappy comebacks um and then eventually I was just like, screw you, go away. Um, this one time I was arguing with a boyfriend, and um, it was a really dramatic argument, as things can be at that age. And, um, and he was actually crying. I remember that. Um, and that might have been the, one of the only times I ever saw him cry. And we're in this public area, but away from people. And this guy comes up to me, and he's this older, like, 57-something, or 50-something-year-old white guy. And he, he interrupts us, and I thought he was lost or something. And he's like, excuse me, you're just so beautiful. I have to know. I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, do you see what's happening? I mean, I was yelling at my boyfriend who was crying. It was very, you know, I'm not proud of this. <laughs> but I just started yelling at this guy who was like, oh, my God, what's her problem? <laughs> it was, yeah, so um, that wasn't fun. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of amazing, um, the racial microaggressions that still exist um, two decades later. Um, I, I definitely, when I go to uh comic convention cities where uh, there aren't that many Asians. Um, I get a lot of questions about um, 
are you Japanese? And they, they, for some reason, people just love to tell me about um, their trip to Tokyo, or, <laughs> um, or like even like on podcast interviews. Uh, distinctly, I remember this one guy uh, just being like, "Oh, so you live in LA? So uh, when's the next Cherry Blossom Festival in Pasadena?" And I'm like, "I don't know. It'll be like if I asked a guy, like, oh, when's the next Oktoberfest? Um, St. Patrick's Day it. bar crawl." Um, but uh, speaking of uh, creepy guys talking about your uh, Asian ancestry, uh, I was wondering if, uh, as a bar hostess worker, you sort of got uh, microaggressions about being a bar hostess, since I know there's all these... Um, for me, I feel like there's all these uh, misconceptions about what being a bar hostess is, and whether that's uh, sex work or just, just ideas people have about that line of work. I think by the time that I was doing that, I was so tough as nails that I didn't, it just bounced right off of me because, you know, I'd been, this was years after years of just standing out so much and being around so many creepy guys and, and also being in the customer industry, um, customer service industry, which I think is actually a major part of it is when you are, you're forced to talk to people and be polite to them, they might mistake that for I don't hate you, <laughs> which they shouldn't. Um, <laughs> so I, I think I had some pretty tough walls up, um, but I definitely did see it happen. Um, or, like I saw a lot of the other women that I worked with affected by it. Um, for example, there's this one girl, she was so sweet, and um, she had this crush on one of the regular clients who was this British guy, one of the few white guys who would come into the um, restaurant. And she had a huge crush on him, and I think she was trying to flirt with him. And he was like, "I don't go for your type of girl," or so- something like that. It was so it, it was so like gut wrenching because he was clearly making all these assumptions about her presumptions, and it was like they were not true. Like she was actually quite wholesome, um, you know. There definitely there definitely were, but you know, I feel like just being a woman who doesn't dress like a nun, and you know, if you're in your early 20s, you get those presumptions already. Um, you know, I, I like to dr- dress like kind of wild, which I never thought of it as a sexy, necessarily way to dress. However, I mean, you know, f- torn up fishnets and stuff. I thought I looked tough, but like guys thought I was trying to turn them on, which I was not. Um, so I don't know. Like, there's there's all sorts of there's just so much, so many microaggressions and just flat out aggressions coming at me from all over the place that it didn't really affect me. Now that I'm a sensitive artist, I think I wouldn't be able to handle it quite as well. Um, interestingly, the more you know, the more longer I do art, the more I become the stereotype. <laughs> um, I'm glad you mentioned stereotypes um, because I think. I think also as a uh, Japanese American woman and artist, um, I almost felt. Wait, 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 wait! I want to go back to this last question because, like, what, like, when you were in Japan, like, I assume that you got a lot of microaggressions at you for, you know, not being Japanese. Japanese, like, what was your experience like that? Like, sorry to cut you off. <laughs> oh no, not a problem. Um, I think, I guess for me, um, I. I know you mentioned this in your book briefly about almost going to Japanese language school. (laughs) So uh, for me... I think um, I was failing at Japanese language school, actually. I was terrible, too. Uh, (laughs) But uh, for me, I I went to about uh, eight years of Japanese Saturday school. And it was so intense where it wasn't just this like hour or three hour long program 
on Saturdays. It was it was a whole school day, and I had to basically. It was like a school where it wasn't just Japanese language. I was taking literature, math, science, social oh science in Japanese, and it was really geared towards um, wait Japanese math. What's that like? <laughs> being taught math by Japanese. Um, so I was uh, so I was like, well, math is my favorite subject because you know I was just not very studious in. The Japanese language. Um, so, so I think even though compared to a lot of my peers, I'm pretty fluent in Japanese. I, I speak it with my parents. If I go to Japan, I can get by. But compared to my classmates, I always felt that I wasn't Japanese enough. Um, I, I have this like you know chip on my shoulder that my Japanese isn't native sounding. And so uh, when I went to Japan, I think I just like put this. It was both external and internal. I felt that I felt self-conscious that even though I look like a Japanese person, I was, um, you know, just the way I dress, even my body language, um, certain inflections in the way I talked. It was just very obvious that I wasn't a Japanese Japanese person. Um, towards the end of the year, I want to say I was starting to pass because my Japanese got a lot better, and <laughs> I was really happy about that. But that was just such a weird mental space to be in, where it's like, oh, I'm accepted by my parents' culture instead of um, defining for myself what it means to be accepted and to uh, be liked. So it was just weird. It's that weird uh, tension I still like struggle with. Where on one hand I want to be my own person, but on the other hand I still really want to be accepted in Japanese culture and and pass as a full-on Japanese person, even though I'm not. I love that you use the word pass. What a great word for that. <laughs> um, uh, it's funny because the more Japanese I look, um, or the less Japanese I look, the more accepting they are. And by they, I mean men in Japanese bars are of me not speaking fluently. Um, so when I had blonde hair, like no one even believed that I was half Japanese, and so they're like, "Oh, your your Japanese is so good." And um, when I had dark hair, they're like, "Why can't you speak better? Like, what's wrong with you? Why didn't your mom teach that you?" That sounds about right. <laughs> what the f? <laughs> and as an aside, um, I've seen photographs of Mari in bleached hair in her twenties, and that's. Amazing. Like, that should be its own like coffee book <laughs> companion book to turning Japanese. There is one blonde note, picture in this book. <laughs> um, what were you going to say? Sorry. Oh, yeah. So um, the question I wanted to ask was, I think, as I was reading the book, thank you, um, I guess on your behalf, I almost felt this anxiety of um, representing Japanese culture, mm. where... Um, and I and we spoke about this earlier, where it's sort of this anxiety of uh, being a Japanese American person, but also uh, wanting to depict your experiences accurately, but also not wanting to perpetuate stereotypes. So, how did you negotiate that tension and making this book? That was really hard. It was really tricky for me because, um, well, I mean, first of all, I can't represent all hoppas and or all Asian Americans are all girls named Mari who grew up in Marin County. I mean, it's like everyone has a different experience and I, I just can't even try. Um, so I just let go of that. <laughs> um, but um, basically like just by writing exactly 
what happened to the, you know, as truthful as it, as I could be about the experience. I mean, so if someone was kind of a stereotype, then they were kind of a stereotype. But then afterwards, going through and seeing, okay, where does it just seem like it's a stereotype and it's so much that it doesn't even seem believable? And I ended up chucking a few of those. But I mean, so... And then I had a friend of mine um, who's Japanese-American. I think he's a second generation, and he went through it. Um, But he deals with a lot of Japanese people. Um, We work together um, at a video game company. And... uh, and I had him go through it and, you know, culturally edit things. Not edit, but proofread. And he kind of pointed out times where I got a word wrong or, you know, I got the Chinese word for hello wrong. I mean, just stuff like that. So that was really helpful. I'm sure the internet will point out all the little mistakes and racism <laughs> type things that I might have not taken out. Um, I so look forward to that. Internet. <laughs> <laughs> I also, uh, I also remember you mentioning that um, the possibility of bringing the book to Japan was considered, but then you were told that people in Japan wouldn't want to read about a Japanese-American person's experience yeah. living in Japan. I mean, yeah, like I still don't understand. Like at first I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But then the more I thought about it, I'm like, I would love to read about someone else's experience in America and just see how I perpetuate like the stereotypes that I might find throughout the book. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's cultural maybe (laughs) it's, I mean, it's very not good to be different in Japan. I mean, my, like, like, my mom, who's Japanese, she's from Japan, then she moved to America for a long time and then moved back. Like, she gets a, I think, I feel like she feels like an outsider too because she was gone for so long. And I mean, but it's not just Japan where that happens. Like, I feel like people in England get that a lot. Like, people who leave and come back and people are made fun of for their American accents. When I hear them, I'm like, I can't even, they sound British to me. I don't know. <laughs> so, I don't know. I mean, we all deal with these things. Oh, feeling like an outsider in um but yeah some some cultures uh are harsher than others about certain aspects but i don't know i've i haven't actually been exposed to a whole lot of different cultures um japan's kind of the big one (laughs) i'm glad you brought up moms Um, (laughs) that is a common experience we have we talk Uh, about moms neurotic japanese moms um I was wondering if um, there are certain this aspects. This is being recorded, of, by the way. <laughs> it's okay. My mom doesn't check the internet, so um. I could get away. <laughs> Maybe not you. Um, well, I was wondering if, um, if there's anything about having a Japanese mom that influenced who you are as a cartoonist, an artist, a person. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say if it was because she's Japanese or, you know, who she is or whatever. I'm still kind of working out these things um, by being friends with Yumi, for example, or talking to other Asian Americans in general, um, not just Japanese, where there's things that, like, my mom does that I always thought were very peculiar and specific to her. And then the more I talk to people, especially Asian Americans, um, but sometimes other, like, non-Asian Americans, I realize, oh, this is something that other people do. This might be a cultural thing. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I, I blipped out. Wait, what was the question? 
How how does having a neurotic oh, Japanese oh. mom <laughs> shape you as a person <laughs> and an artist? I mean, it definitely connects me to other Asian American women. <laughs> um, yeah, she's 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 fun though. I think that um, one thing that I definitely got from my mom, and I don't is kind of my artistic side, um, or I always thought so. My dad um, always wanted to be a novelist, and my mom is very good at art. And I actually didn't even know this until I was maybe 14 or 15, and she was trying to describe a piece of a kimono, um, the, I think an OB or something. Thank you. <laughs> um, and she couldn't describe it to me, and so she drew it like in a heartbeat, and I still have this drawing, it's, I want to see this oh, drawing. It's amazing. And I mean, I'm not a huge fan of like the manga style, but she basically just like whipped out this perfect manga, like woman, like just all dressed up in like formal kimono. I mean, and I'm like, mom, I didn't know you could draw. She's like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> and I think that's the only thing I ever saw her draw too. And she's really good at it um so i like to think that i mean she's better than i am my god like like that was just a sketch i can't sketch at all i have to like sketch and then erase 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 sketch erase erase like i'm it's like i'm sculpting or something i'm carving like a drawing out of a piece of paper with an eraser that's a really bad analogy <laughs> no that's amazing it's like japanese wood cutting oh <laughs> i like how you brought that around <laughs> Well, I think um, my last question I want to ask you is, um, well, the other thing that you do, which I think is awesome, is that you're the founder of the Cartoonists of Color database. And uh, I guess especially with just all the conversations that's happening right now in pop culture with uh, Scarlett Johansson's digital yellow face, um, all the (laughs) weird... racism towards Asians that happened during the Oscars and just just um, all the whitewashing that's happening in general. I'm not even sure what my question is, but I guess it's uh, as an Asian American artist, uh, what responsibilities do you feel oh God. in light of <laughs> just the current pop culture climate with Asian American and um, minority representation? Well, you know, when I started writing this and drawing this book, which was actually, um, I started in 2009 or so, so I've been working on this for a very long time, Um, I kind of was trying to downplay the cultural aspect and the Japanese-ness of it. Um, I just made up that word. um, I could totally relate to that because I feel like I went through a phase where I was like, I don't want to be an Asian-American artist, I just want to be an artist. And then then I sort of finally, uh, for myself, came full circle where it's not mutually exclusive yeah um, i definitely the the more i got into it and and, and I, I kind of wish i'd focused on it even a little more than i had but um but i don't know i also don't want to be preachy so it's i don't know the book is i think the book is good i i, I read it the other day i'm like oh this isn't bad i finished it like three years ago so I, i'm like oh what if i hate this if i look at it but like, it's not bad um i mean it's great you should buy it and um <laughs> It's great. Don't listen to her. Just read my blurb on the back. And <laughs> buy it. Um, I don't know. It's, it's weird. Like, so I, I did feel like I was downplaying it. Now I feel because of the climate, um, I don't feel a responsibility, but I think I feel freer to revel in it and to talk about it more openly. And I'm, um, you know, I'm not, I never used to talk to my white friends and most of my friends are white um, or not just white, but like non-Asian friends. 
about race because I would be the only person there who was Asian and 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 they would kind of look at me. So what do you think, Mari? I'm like, with my glass of wine, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Change the subject quickly. Like, I, it's not. It, it, it's you know, it sucks to be put on the spot like that. Um, and I've only recently started talking to some of these people about it and like and seeing misconceptions and blah blah blah. Like, I just think they never. I've been told a lot by particularly white friends that they never saw me as Asian, um, which is fine. Like we're, you know, we all grew up together and, you know, it's, it's not something that they thought of, but I'm like, yeah, actually I am. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, and I think, I think when people say that they mean it, that in a, as a, not a compliment, not that Asian's bad, but they mean that as a, oh, I look beyond race, but I'm like, well, maybe you should look at it for, you know, just a second. And, oh, know. yeah, I love that gem. I don't see race. <laughs> I mean, it, it's valid when you're a little kid. Um, I, in fact, I don't, when I grew up, I was I grew up in Marin, but I was, I'm from Texas, and I was from this little town, and um, I mean, you notice people's skin color, but like, I, it never occurred to me that one thing meant like a black person is different than a Mexican person or a white person or Japanese person. Like, I mean, one thing I was really young, but also the climate there was different. It was a super small town, very, very small town. And, um, like the first boy I kissed was black and it just never occurred to me that he was black until I came to Marin County, which was very, very white. And there were black kids there. Um, there were two black kids who were not like in my elementary school who, um, were with the normal people and they both had, um, white adopted parents and the rest of them were in the special ed class which I thought oh are black people different like I like and that's when I started like thinking about race and thinking about myself in terms of like oh I'm different too it's just a weird thing and it was like I moved from Texas to this super liberal town where like I look back I'm like wow those people were really racist and gross but I mean, unless anyone's from Mill Valley in this room, in which case Mill Valley is really cool. <laughs> sorry, and sorry, Daniel. <laughs> but you know, you're not white. You saw. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a weird, toxic environment to grow up in, and I'm like, it's, it was beautiful, but I'm really glad to be gone from there. Anyway, any questions? <laughs> yeah, I guess we can now open the floor to questions from the audience. <laughs> oh yes. How did y'all meet? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we've. I, I remember uh, sort of seeing Mari at uh, Alternative Press Expo a few years ago when she was uh, promoting Kiss and Tell, and I think I've seen the book around. And I, I was. That was five years ago. Whoa. I, I was like nervous, so you know, I didn't say hi to her. Um, but then we just randomly connected on Twitter, uh, so we became Twitter friends. Did we? Yeah, we did. I feel like I saw your stuff. No, because I saw your uh, your friend love comic. And then, but I think you saw my other comic on Sadie Magazine yeah. before Friend Love. Oh, that wasn't the Friend Love one? Mm-mm. Oh, God. For a memoirist, I have a really shitty memory. <laughs> the internet records everything, so oh, it you know, lessens the burden of <laughs> physical memory. Um, and, then, and then we met in person at LA Zine Fest, I want to say in 2000. 
12. I'm really sorry. 11. I don't remember this. It's okay. Well, you I know, this it. was me like sort of um, semi-stalking mine. So, <laughs> of course, I'm going to have the better memory. Um, so then, so then uh, when I happened to be in San Francisco, I uh, reached out to Mari and uh, we, we had like shop a shopper together very japanese which all led to this moment um <laughs> and um well well i'm i'm sort of telling this boring story to get to my main point which i think is hilarious is that uh, mari thought after we had this uh, dinner um random meetup which she was which she was very nice to do uh, she thought to herself well yumi she's She's, she's kind of nice. too nice, so I don't think we're going to be friends. Yeah, I, I didn't think um, we'd be friends. I'm like, so I'm really excited that she eventually <laughs> realized what a terrible person I really am. And so now we're like inseparable. <laughs> so uh, now, and then Mari moved to LA, and now we just like hang out all the time. I didn't expect to move to LA. I mean, this was, yeah, that was, um, I've been here for three years now. And yeah, like we. <laughs> Yeah. And LA is better for it because uh, all her friends get free avocados. <laughs> and now you guys all buy And now you all are my friends. Too. Actually, most of you are my friends. So avocados <laughs> for everyone. <laughs> yeah, but when I, I would just like to say that when she wrote the blurb, we were not as close as we are now. So the, the, the blurb is hopefully actually accurate. <laughs> and yeah. not blinded by our, our, our Japanese. But I wasn't bribed by avocados in writing this blurb. Yes, I had. I did not yet have the avocado tree. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else have any questions? Um, it was in the middle of nowhere. Have you heard of it? It was. <laughs> it was. I don't know where that is. It, well, I was very young when I moved away. I was um, seven, turning eight, and it was at the Panhandle. Um, the closest town was Amarillo, and. Um, my best friend, uh, go, it, when I was in Texas, grew up to be um, Miss Texas 1994, 97. Actually, someone else I knew ended up being like Miss Minnesota or something. Like, I've known a lot of beauty queens. I feel like I would be a very different person now if I'd stayed. <laughs> and now she goes around the country and does um, pro-life talks and stuff. <laughs> but we're very friendly on Facebook. <laughs> She's pretty. <laughs> anyway, oh, yeah. Okay, so this is about, I guess, like family. And these stories are always very personal. It's always about you, but how do you, I guess, how have, has your family taken you telling these stories about yourself? And how do you kind of protect your heart? I mean, the first book I wrote, or the first book I published, um, was about my sex life as a teenager. So I kind of got that out of the way um, with that one. Um, it was very, very awkward for them. Um, so now the fact that I'm not writing about my sex life, they're, I think they're thrilled. Um, but, you know, the other day I emailed my mom, and, and there's a kind of... Uh, a story, well not a story, this happened where she um, had this kind of traumatic experience and I, I emailed her and asked her if I could write about it because like, I don't generally want to tell other people's stories, it feels weird, but, um, but it really affected me so that's why I wanted to write about it and she gave me her blessing, which is great because I feel like she used to be so private and I, I think maybe... I don't know. I like to think that my comics are helping, you know, push her out of that uh, discomfort of being on the, you know, spotlight. But maybe, maybe there are other factors. Who knows? Um, 
Yeah, she still hasn't read the first book, by the way, and I hope she never does. <laughs> but you all should. It's amazing. I mean, not everyone should read it. If you're not uncomfortable with teenage sex, you should read it. <laughs> or if you want to, anyway. <laughs> Sorry, talking about sex. Anyone else? <laughs> Yeah, hey, Sean. <laughs> uh, first off, bringing avocados to your own reading is like the most SoCal Japanese on earth. Thank you. I feel so accepted by this community. Second, <laughs> uh, if you handed this book to San Jose or uh, Maninami, what would you want the takeaway to be? Well, I mean, so the. The events in the book happened um, in 1996 to 1997, um, which was like months after it ends is when I started drawing comics. So I think if I handed it to old me, I'd be like, what? I'm drawing comics? <laughs> cool. Um, I don't know. I, but like I, after I lived the experience, I, you know, when, I, when I took the job as a person who wanted to be a novel writer, I was thinking, oh, maybe I could mine this for a book someday. Um, and when I was in the middle of it, the experience was so excruciating and unpleasant. I mean, the book's not completely unpleasant, but like at the time, as a customer service person, I was like, this sucks. Who would want to read about this? I don't want to write about this. I don't want to think about this ever again. And, um, and then I didn't until like 2009, so it took a while. Um, so it depends on what stage I was in. <laughs> I don't know. That's a complicated. That's a good question, but I don't know. I think I, I mean, if I handed it to old me, I think I would just be really like, I'm not writing novels. What's the shit? <laughs> really, I'm still doing comics. That's weird. <laughs> it was not supposed to be a career. <laughs> Anybody else? I guess I have a question, um, which relates to that. I guess. I guess I'm wondering, uh, since you sort of had this long period of time where you didn't necessarily want to revisit and relive all the memories and turning Japanese, what what was it that made you decide like that you were ready to write about it? God, you know, I don't, I don't know what it was. All I know is that one day I started sketching my clothes from the '90s. And sketching my boyfriend at the time too, just making these little color sketches, which I and I was experimenting with color, and I and the book's not in color, but like at the time I was playing around with the idea of it being in color, and then it just developed, and, and the more I did it, and the more the book just started to kind of come to me, like oh, this is what it's going to be like. Um, I don't know. It, it stopped sounding boring to me. I guess just having enough time. But um, yeah, time time really does a lot of great things for getting over things. It's true. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It was like this weird organic process that um, yeah, I, I couldn't force it obviously because yeah. <laughs> and then I guess my follow up question is. Um, what are some projects that you were, you would like to share with us, like future projects, um, upcoming things that you are working on now? Um, I can't really talk about that. No, I can. I, I, well, I, I finished a young adult book a little while ago. Um, 
And I have another, actually another book that's coming out in the fall, um, which is about uh, a long-time female friendship of mine. Um, this girl used to be my bully. We met when we were in third grade, and now we're like best of friends. Um, so it was sort of like this, it's only 64 pages. It's not like the length of a graphic novel, but um, with that one, I'm excited about that. That debuts in September. Um, I, I don't know. I'm working on like 10 different things right now, but um, I, I don't know. <laughs> I really wanted to do a webcomic about, and then I started doing it about this like little death rock girl and this little punk rock kid that takes place in the 80s, but now I just don't have time to do it. And I'm like bombed. I got like two pages done and I have like this whole thing mapped out. So maybe in 10 years I'll finish that. It takes a long time to draw these things. Like seriously, like Kiss and Tell was like eight years. Um, turning Japanese, I started in 2009. I mean, ugh. It's like two cents an hour. It's like way below poverty level. <laughs> oh, yeah. You said there was such a long gap between when the events happened and then when you started writing the book. What was your process for kind of like recreating this memory? Did you have a diary or did you go back to that place? How did I revisit these memories and dig them up out of their ditch? Um, I, I I took so many pictures when I was in Japan. Um, so I don't have a lot of pictures uh, in... So the first half of the book takes place in San Jose and the second half of the book takes it takes place in Japan. Um, and so I have tons of photos from the Japan uh, portion of the trip. Um, I lived there for three months. Um, so that was really helpful. I did keep some very annoying diaries um, that are so excruciating to read because I'm like, I just want the facts. I just want the timeline. What was I doing each day? And I'm just like, I don't think he understands me. <laughs> so that was completely useless. <laughs> um, and actually, in the middle, so so the, during the, the course of this book, I'm with this guy who I call Giuseppe. And... Um, and Several years. Oh, what? No, I must have started it before 2009. I think I really got in. So yeah, it was it was way before 2009 that I started the book. And by the time, like in 2009, he and I started being friends after a long disconnect. Like we stopped talking to each other in the 90s. Um, and so suddenly we're being friends. And so I'm like, oh hey, I'm actually working on this book that stars you. And um. And luckily he wasn't too mad, but he was like, man, if I'd come across this, like, and we hadn't been talking, I'd be so mad. But, um, but we ended up being able to compare notes and that was really helpful and great for the process. Um, I, I love it when I could still talk to people about the events. Um, the, the book that's coming out in September, also with my friend, my long-term friend, like we went back and forth on a lot of things and I actually showed her every um, iteration of the book. So like, I really like talking to people. Um, Kiss and Tell was like that too. It involved a lot of exes and there were definitely times where I'd go back to exes that I'd found on Friendster at the time and said, <laughs> I know. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, hey, you know, why, why did we break up again? Like, that was so long ago. And then, like, it would give me such new insight for, that, like, changed the whole book because, oh, you weren't over your ex. I'm like, oh, wait, that puts, like, everything into perspective that I did after this amount of time. But, like, I didn't, I was so young that I wasn't aware of that and blah, blah, blah. So, I don't know, it really helps to talk to people. I don't like just making shit up, you know. <laughs> but, yay, Steph. Follow up to that. Um, did you, have you ever found in comparing notes with people that uh, your memories have differed wildly? All the time. 
Oh, totally. All my, yeah, I think my memory is really crappy, so it's it's good that I've kept a lot of meticulous notes. Um, there's there's a story in Dragon's Breath and other true stories where I um, I hear a gun shot for the first time, and my with a, na- a neighbor comes and kills a snake that ate a bunch of bunnies. And um, after that comic came out, my mom's like, "Yeah, you're mixing two separate memories." And um, that wasn't a gun; it was a knife. And the bunnies were another time. <laughs> And it's funny because my memory is so clear because especially at the time, I'm like, I've never heard or seen a gun before. This is incredible. So I'm like, why am I? Mom, I think you're wrong. She's like, I was in my 20s and you were five. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, and so part of me is like, well, okay, I'm going to be wrong sometimes. And, you know, I just have to, I get to talk about it at these things, and, and that somehow makes up for the fact that it's totally wrong, probably. <laughs> yeah, there's, I mean, there's definitely, um, like, exes where, I mean, I think, I think everyone has their own experience, and they're like, oh, wow, that's what you were seeing at the time. And it may or may not be, like, factually true, but then, like, they had their own shit going on. Like, as I was saying before, in middle school, I thought everyone hated me, and then, in high school, I kind of made friends with older people, so I didn't really know the middle school people or the people that I'd grown up with. And when I went to my high school reunion, they were all the people that I went to middle school with. And um, and I kind of realized they didn't hate me. They didn't know I existed. Like, they were so... There's this one guy who I remember so vividly. Like, God, he was such a bully. And, like, I was talking about like to him at the at the reunion, and, like, it became really clear that, no, he wasn't... I just was really neurotic as a 11-year-old girl. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. And and memory it, itself is so malleable, and it changes all the time. Every time you tell a story that, I don't know, what can you do? I just I just want to tell a good story in the end that, that's honest, as honest as, as it can be. Like, honest does not necessarily mean accurate sometimes. But, Jesse! <laughs> um, are, are there memoirs? Well, since we're being recorded, I'm not gonna. Um, I'm gonna say that I don't hate anybody in the history of the universe. Um, <laughs> um, memories, I God, I love so. Like, honestly, actually, I can't think of anyone that I don't like. Um, I can think of comic book people, people who make comics who I'm not particularly that don't really get to me, but like. Hate is a very strong word. Um, I kind of am a memoir junkie, and not just in comics, but in like all genres. Um, so even stuff that I could tell isn't very well done. I still enjoy it a little bit, and um, and I, yeah, I just eat it up. But I definitely have favorites. Um, I mean, like obviously, Alison Bechtel is a great one. Um, I really liked her book, Are You My Mother?, which is pretty much all about writing memoir. I mean, that's, like, everyone knows her for a fun home, but, like, all about, like, Are You My Mother is, like, that just really... Have you read that one? Yeah. Did you like it? I did. Okay. Did you like it more than Fun Home or less? Uh, I guess when I first uh, read it, I sort of had this reaction that I, I didn't like it because it was so unexpected, but it definitely grew on to me, like, wine. Like, I, I feel like now I... I like her second book more. I felt that way about Fun Home, where I'm like, this is too easily accessible when I first read it, but then every time I read it again, I'm like, this is really good. And mm-hmm. like, it just it grew on me like a very good song. Um, Carol Tyler, I think, is one of my favorite of all time cartoonist memoir 
comics memoirist like her she i think she's up for an eisner for uh, the reprint of her um trilogy uh i think it's called you'll never know it's about her father and it's so freaking good it's it's really good you should read it (laughs) i i believe you've read it probably um and uh, but like my favorite memoirist is is Cheryl Strayed when she wrote her tiny beautiful things her dear sugar um, advice column like that's just hands down it's but I mean I don't know I love it all it's it's all very good um, uh, Yumi once did um, a sort of memoir a, a diary um, of her trip to Paris right mm-hmm. Paris and Rome yeah it was so good and I really wish she would make more. But she doesn't like making memoirs, so... Oh, it's not that I don't like making it. Um, I guess for me... Uh, so so Mario's talking about this uh, mini comic I made. It was a travel diary comic about my travels to Paris and Rome in 2012. And I really loved making it, but I think it just took a lot out of me. Uh, just, like, uh, retracing... Because uh, I actually did take very meticulous uh, sketch diaries. I took a lot of photos, and um, when I was making them, I, I referenced a lot of the architecture that, was, uh, that I saw in Paris and Rome, and I think it was just so um, mentally exhausting. <laughs> I'm intimidated to do it again, uh, but I don't want to cancel it out completely. Uh, I do have a, this uh, secret comic essay in the works, so... I, I, I do mostly fiction, but I, I do still uh, I, I have a few uh, secret projects up my sleeve. I feel like he did something for Bitch Magazine recently that was memoir which I liked. Thank you. <laughs> was it Bitch? Yeah, it, it was for Bitch. Yeah, I love those guys. <laughs> but yeah, there's one moment in your um, in the 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 diary comic. Well, two moments: one where you drank too much wine, and another moment where you were kind of having this trippy experience um, and kind of meditating in, I think it was Rome. Mm-hmm, it was in Rome. And it that, like, I never pantheon. got meditation until I read that, like, those two panels. I'm like, oh, I get it. That's so awesome. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I still don't do it, but I got it, which is, like, a huge first step. <laughs> I'm, too, I'm, too, oh, I'm a little too neurotic to meditate, I think. But that's why you should meditate. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anybody else? Oh, yeah. Um, since you um, saw yourself writing novels, um, what drew you to comics? What drew me to comics? Um, well, yeah, I always wanted to be a novelist, but I always drew. Um, and like in the memoir never really occurred to me because I'd never seen anything that wasn't a celebrity memoir um, until the 90s when I um, I saw like autobio comics like underground comics for the first time and I don't know that was so great and then there's this one that I could tell you the exact comic that just switched in my head it was uh, Mary Fleener's comic The Jelly um, in Twisted Sisters a collection of bad girl art it was an anthology and her like I just it was so funny, and it was so, like, there were so many great things about it. It was so beautiful, and I, I'm not, and I wasn't especially then, a very good artist, but I was like, hey, I could do this. I have stories like this, and so it was just sort of this sort of, like, fun hobby that I did, and, um, but, like, I'm also into painting and, and all sorts of other things. Like, I would love to do more filmmaking, and I don't mean that in the Hollywood way. I mean, like, by myself and alone in a room with nobody else, like, getting their fingers in my shit, um, 
like I've made a couple short video like video story storytelling animation things that like so that's really fun like and I still want to do all these other things um I did not expect comics to become this thing or to ever have a like I thought I think at the at when I was dreaming as high as I could with comics. I thought maybe one day, like I could have like a serial, like floppy comic, which they don't. I guess they still do that, but I, I don't really pay attention anymore. But like, it just never occurred to me that I would have books, like, or really write about my life. Like, I don't know. It's pretty weird how things happen. <laughs> yeah, I think that's all the time we have. Probably are we? Are we so or or, <laughs> or if anyone else has a question, or we can just start handing out avocados and signing books if anyone wants us to do that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so for a note about the avocados. One of the bags is full of ones that fell off the tree, so they're a little damaged. They might have little squirrel bites in them, and they're um, ripening or ripe or maybe a little beyond. Like, I can't vouch for them. The other bag... Um, is full of avocados that I personally, by myself, went on a really tall ladder to get today and risked my life for you guys. Um, but they're not ripe yet, and you'll need to put like either have them sitting around for like a week, or you can stick take one of the bags I've, I, that I brought and maybe put an apple in there, and it'll ripen in like a day or two. And they are the best avocados I've ever had. I didn't like avocados before I met this tree. <laughs> it, they're, they have this like weird smoky flavor to them. They're really good. They're really, really good. I give out for them. I, I already went through like two shopping bags full of them and I'm still like not sick of them. So. It was crazy. There were like 55 avocados that fell off my tree one day like last week. I mean, now it's slowed down so, or else I would have brought more. But um, but please take a few. That's all. <laughs> Yay for Mari. Thank you. Yay for Yui. Thanks for coming. <laughs> the reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.